So please let yourself again sit back down in a way that's at ease, comfortable. Last week, for those of you who are here, spent some time exploring the awareness directed to the nature of mind itself and to the processes of thought and feeling in the space of knowing or awareness within which it arises. I'd like to change the direction of this inquiry this, this week and speak about uh, a different quality of practice that I would call sanctuary. And using the word sanctuary, we'll use it in a number of ways this evening, but in, in the deepest sense, the sanctuary is the establishment of a sense of rest or refuge, a place of freedom within which it's possible to know our own life and the lives of others around us. Some freedom and connectedness. And I'm thinking about sanctuary, both in relation to the meditation practice that we do, and in particular because we're in the middle of this um, construction project. Those of you who come while it's still light and look a few hundred yards that way down past the kitchen dining hall, there's this whole sea of carpentry and um, foundations and pipes and so forth. We're in the middle of building seven buildings for the uh, silent retreat center that are supposed to be completed, um, five of them next April in the meditation hall and walking room next June. And one of the things we did a few days ago as they were about to pour the 30-foot deep pillars of concrete that go down into the earth that will be the foundation for the meditation hall, um, before they poured that into where all the steel was placed, um, we put at the very bottom of those big holes that were dug 30 feet down a, a series of stones that had come out of a ceremony of some hundreds of us on the hillside um, in which people had written prayers and blessings and hopes for the meditation hall um, and traditional uh, chants and sutra lines um, and then covered them with gold leaf and put beautiful designs on them. And we buried those at the very bottom of the pillars, resting on the earth, so that whatever happens in the meditation hall will rest on the intentions of those prayers and those blessings. And so I watch this retreat being created and I come out here um, at different times in the day and even in the evenings, these beautiful evenings, and I think how lucky we'll be to be able to walk on this land in the evening, in the cool evening air and moonlight. The meditation temples in Southeast Asia in which I practiced 
especially the forest monasteries, were very literally sanctuaries. So the monastery of Ajahn Chah, my teacher, which was in a thick forest near the borders of Laos and Cambodia, but inside Thailand. In the first years that I was there, it was uh, still the active time of the Vietnam War. And so at night we would see bombers go overhead and see the flash of the bombs in Laos or Vietnam or Cambodia, not so far distant. And the daytime we would also see the planes from the air bases. And as I've told in other evenings, there would be friends who came to visit in this monastery. I had a series of friends after working in the Mekong River Valley as a Peace Corps volunteer on medical teams in their villages and provinces there, some of whom who worked in directly in Laos or Vietnam in the, the Quakers Peace Project, for example. And they would come and visit and say, you know, you gave up serving these people and now you're just sitting on your rear end and doing nothing and there are all these people that, that needs assistance and what are you doing here? Kind of a challenge. But they would stay over the course of some days and come in busy and um, intense and somehow caught up with what they were doing, which was beautiful, but maybe a bit too caught up in a certain way. And by the end of the week, they would leave and they'd say, this has been so good. Now I feel refreshed to go back. And they learned something in the monastery because maybe 30 miles away, was the war. Um, and in the places of war, for those who have not been there, people go crazy. And they tear down the things that they most treasure, the temples to sell them, and they will steal from one another. And the level of survival becomes so um, frightening that, that uh, the mind goes crazy. And here in this monastery, which had nothing to do with the war, and didn't say anything about the war, and had been there a long time, you could come in and lose your wallet or your, you know, wedding ring or your gold, whatever it was. Someone would pick it up and place it on the altar or save it for you. And people would meet you, whoever you were, respectfully as you entered. Um, And it was as if it was a living library. It was a place through war and peace and a commotion outside and good years. It was a place um, that acted as an example of what human beings could really do to live in harmony with themselves and the world around. And just its presence was the great teaching. I've talked in other evenings as well about visiting the great um, Hawaiian temple on the black volcanic rock coast of the Big Island at uh, the Temple of Refuge, Puahonua Ohonau now, which was that place with these huge black 10-foot-wide lava walls and the, the king's pools and the sacred pools for the kings and chiefs, the ali'i, and the place for the kahunas and the chiefs, uh, priests to be there. Um, that if one could go into that temple, no matter what you'd done wrong in that society, even if you'd killed someone or broken the worst taboo, if you could go 
and get yourself into that temple, you would be taken in and forgiven, given some teachings and practice and transformation and sent back out no matter what it was. Then you begin to imagine what this culture would be like if we built temples of forgiveness instead of prisons. So many of them. When one enters a temple, a forest monastery, a sanctuary, it evokes or touches something different than our ordinary and everyday life or consciousness. Thomas Merton wrote a booklet that was a kind of a welcoming booklet to those who are interested in the Trappist monasteries, Gethsemane and St. Joseph's Abbey and so forth. He said people ask, why does someone come into a monastery? What's the purpose of monastic life? To say that monks are justified because they practice scientific agriculture or because the monastery is a kind of dynamo of prayer whose prayers go out to serve the world is often to compromise the real meaning of monastic life. Actually, what matters about the sanctuary of the monastery is precisely that it is radically different from the world. The apparent pointlessness of the monastery in the eyes of the world is exactly what gives it a real reason for existing. In a world of noise, confusion, and conflict, it is necessary that there be places of silence, inner discipline, and peace. Not the peace of mere relaxation, but the peace of inner clarity and love based on renunciation. In a world of tension and breakdown, it is necessary for there to be some who seek to integrate their inner lives not by avoiding anguish and running away from problems, but by facing them in their naked reality and their ordinariness. Thus, the seeming fruitless existence of the monk or the nun is therefore centered on the ultimate meaning and the highest value. It loves life and truth for its own sake, and it gives away everything in order to hear the word of the divine and to follow that. We all need times like that in our lives. A place or a time or a way to be reconnected with our true self, with what is timeless, what is free in this heart and spirit, what is called the face that you had before your parents were born in one Zen koan, that spirit that came before you took this body. There's a story of a man who went to see a Sufi master in India, because a lot of the Islamic mystical tradition beside Persia and Turkey and Isfahan and Cairo, a big piece of it is in the Muslim culture of India. He went to see this Sufi master who was seated by the side of the Ganges, the holy river. And the Ganges, he was seated, seated there and the Ganges was flowing by and he went and he found this master and he wanted to bring the master some great treasure as an expression of his devotion and asking for the teachings and somehow to support the master. So he gathered up what he could and he traded it all and he 
bought the two largest and most luminous pearls that he could find in the marketplace. Incredible pearls. And so he brought them to the master and he bowed and he paid his respect. He said, Master, I've come for the teachings and I have come to offer you these. He placed in his hand these two moon-like luminous pearls. And the master took them and kind of looked at them and then casually let one roll out of his hand into the Ganges. And the man was took a breath and was upset and said, oh, you've dropped it and turned around immediately and went kind of fishing around in the water in the current. I can't find it. Where is it gone? Oh, Master, I'm so sorry. Did you see where it went? And the Master said, yes, it went over there. <laughs> and he threw the second one in. Ah. So in a way... The reminder of sanctuary or the blessing of the it and spiritual life is to come to a place where you don't get anything, but where you let go or you leave things. We often say this at the end of the retreat, we hope you're going home with nothing, you know? Because this isn't the place to get something, this is the dump, right? This is the place to let stuff go. To let go of the small sense of self, the fears, the ambitions, the things that drive us so that we can listen from a place of the spirit or the soul of that which can awaken us in this life. To live like the water of the Ganges. Now somehow related to this is a Greek myth, a mysterious myth of freedom that is the story of Daphne. Do you remember the myth of Daphne? She's one of the faces of the goddess Diana or Artemis who lives deep in the woods and far away from civilized life. And she's renowned as a huntress and she's seen running through the woods singing songs. Beautiful image. But she was so beautiful and free and one day the great god Apollo looked down and saw her and fell in love with her. And so he went down to earth to pursue her and he began to chase her and he tried to convince her to have a relationship. (laughs) That's not in the Greek myths as I remember them. (laughs) Ah. He tried to convince her to be with him. Right? And the closer he came, the more frightened she became, and she began to run and run, and he ran after her, thinking that if she would not consent, that then he would have to go and catch her. And she ran and ran, and finally she called to her father as he was just catching up to her. She came to the river along which she had been born, and her father was the river god himself. And she said, Father, Father, save me. And here was... You know, Apollo just about to touch her and Daphne running. And her father rose up from the river and touched her and she changed her form and turned into a willow tree. Put down roots and then she danced freely in the breeze but not in the form that Apollo could capture. Turned into a tree. So she wanted to be free. And if we hear this story in the song of Daphne, 
often that will touch that place in us that longs to run through the woods and be free and find that kind of innocence, which is beautiful to our spirit. And yet the myth takes us someplace else as well because there's a certain sacrifice necessary for true freedom. And so in order to keep herself free, she let go of some of that freedom to find a new form of freedom, not be possessed. So this becomes more of a puzzle. What is this freedom? Poem of Wordsworth, Nuns fret not at their convent's narrow room, and hermits are contented with their cells. Maids at the wheel, and the weaver at his loom. In truth the prison unto which we doom ourselves, no prison is. For within the sonnet's scanty plot of ground, he writes this as a sonnet, who have felt the weight of too much liberty should find brief solace there as I have found. So he's talking about the nuns and the monks and the weavers at their loom and the hermits in their cells and the maids at the wheel. And the sonnet itself, he has this form of a sonnet, and I didn't read all of the lines of it. And yet, he says, in the sonnets, those who have felt the weight of too much liberty should find brief solace there, as I have found in the sonnet's scanty plot of ground. So he speaks to that same freedom that this story of Daphne speaks of, the freedom that comes when we rest where we are, the freedom to be discovered um, where we are. And the story of Daphne, or the myth of Daphne, also speaks about returning to the earth, that the sanctuary may not always be to run free, but maybe at some point we have to stop and put our hands and our feet into the earth, into the garden, into the soil of the place that we live to reconnect and bring our attention here in some direct and immediate way. Breathe and pay attention. And you know what happens if we don't, if we seek some kind of outer freedom and leave aside the earth on which we live, the plot of ground, um, the body, this part of the earth that is our own body. As Alice Miller writes, where is that? Ah. The truth about our childhood and the spirit we carry is stored in our own body. And although we can repress it and run from it, we can never alter it. Our intellect can be deceived, our feelings manipulated, our perceptions confused, and our body tricked with medication. But someday the body will present its bill, for it is as incorruptible as a child, that spirit within us who, still whole in spirit, will accept in the end no compromises or excuses and will not stop tormenting us until we stop evading its truth. (coughs) 
So to find sanctuary also in some way is to come into life and not to move away from it. Listening through our breathing and our attention, not to our plans, but to some greater mystery that moves through us and through every single being. Following some deeper calling, the movement of the Tao within us. There's another story, and again, I'm not quite sure how it connects, but tonight I feel like telling it, so we'll see. And it's a biblical story, but it's more spelled out. It's, a, it's, it's mentioned in the Bible that we know, but it, a greater version of it is in the Abyssinian Bible, the Ethiopian uh, version of the Old Testament. And it tells of Makeda, who is also called in our Bible the Queen of Sheba. Um, who was above all things beside beautiful and gracious and so forth, a lover of wisdom. Sophia was her goddess, a lover of wisdom. And anyway, she heard, because she lived in that time, uh, she heard about a king who was supposedly the wisest who had ever lived. That's King Solomon. And so she decided, all right, let me check this out. I want to see. And so as it's told in the Abyssinian Bible, she got a huge retinue of followers, and it's also there in the Old Testament, again, not with as much detail. And they came, this woman who was a grand and wise woman herself, a great queen, gracious, beautiful, strong. And she came with camels and an enormous retinue of attendants and chests of gold and jewels and laid them and it was an offering in the visit to King Solomon. And then she came to test him, to see if he was indeed as wise as she had heard. And Solomon answered all her questions and did so in such a beautiful way that he really won her friendship as well. And I imagine, actually, that as a queen or as a king as he was, they were kind of lonely. I mean, even if he had, you know, hundreds of wives or whatever, it's a very lonely position to be in the, the king or the queen, if you really look at it, in a difficult one. So here they could come together and share that, which they loved, wisdom. And apparently, as the story is told, they were a true match. And she stayed with him six months. And on the last night, Solomon, who was also a lover of women and beauty, said, come and rest in my bedchamber for this night. And she said she would agree, but only if he would not force his affections on her. And so he sat there for a moment and said, yes, I will make that solemn promise as a king, but only in exchange for a small promise from you, great queen that you are, that you not take anything from my home from this home of value without my permission. Certainly, she said, why would I ever think of doing that? So before they went off to take their rest, he, he had caused a great banquet to be served. And when he went back in the kitchen, he made sure that the food was salty and spicy and filled with all these aromas and intensities. And then they retired to the king's bedchamber where she fell asleep and he waited, she unknowing. 
And somewhere in the middle of the night she stirred and awoke with this great thirst and reached over to the side of the bed and poured. It's <laughs> great. You're in the desert now, right? Cup of water and took it to drink. And the moment that the cup of water touched her lips and she swallowed. Okay, we'll do the whole thing. Solomon turned around and lit the candle and said, he said, you've taken a drink. She said, yes. (laughs) He said, and then I must ask you a question. What in this desert kingdom do you believe the most precious thing of all to be, especially for one who is thirsty? Water, indeed. So as that night ended, she bore him a son. (laughs) That's how it happens. Or she began the process and she left his... She left his palace and she went back and nine months after that night, this son was born, um, who she later sent back and returned to study in the court of Solomon from the princely kingdom of Ethiopia to the court of Solomon. And it's said that he then returned back to Abyssinia and with him he brought the uh, tablets of Moses, the Ark of the Covenant, it said that it disappeared from Jerusalem and went back to Af- into Africa. Um, and the heritage of that is, in this century, found was all the way up to the Emperor Haile Selassie, who was the great-great-great-great-great-grandson of this son of Solomon and son of the Queen of Sheba. And so the, the Rastas, you know, and that... Rastafarian, which loves the Ethiopian tradition, they trace themselves back to Solomon through the Queen of Sheba. So I started to tell the story when I spoke about the following of some deeper calling, of this mystery that wants to happen through us in life, independent of our plans, and our idea is something great wants to move through each one of us. And part of the uh, openness to that greatness is spending time in sanctuary. As one Christian nun wrote, she said, the life of this discipleship is one of constant tension between the desert sanctuary and the marketplace. When we dwell in the sanctuary, We live with the painful awareness of the sick in need of a doctor, of the imprisoned in need of a liberator, of the indifferent in need of awakening. And yet, when made desperate by the cries of those who need help, anyone's help, we leave the sanctuary and go into the market. It is not long before we find that both our desire and our power to serve have been generated in the periods of aloneness and silence. Sanctuary or marketplace, it is not a question of pitching our tent in one or the other, but of learning to move and go forth and withdraw as the needs of others and the needs of our spirit demands of us. 
So it's important to understand that even sanctuary is not one-sided. To be too practical is true madness, someone said. Sanctuary, in a greater sense, is that place that holds both the human and the divine together, both as sacred. So in Merton's description of the monastery, he said, let no one justify the monastery as a place from which anguish is absent and in which its members have no problems. If you ever live in a monastery, you'll understand that. Or Zen Master Ryokan, the beloved poet who plays with the children in many of his poems. But on other days and times, he writes, another year lingers to its end, heaven sends a bitter frost, fallen leaves cover the mountains, and there are no travelers to cast shadows on this path. Walking home, crickets disturbed by my unexpected steps shriek, Looking up, I see the setting sun, unbearable loneliness. Here's the Zen master. And the reason he's beloved is because he plays with the children some days. And other days, he says, looking up, I see the setting sun, unbearable loneliness. He just speaks what's so. Rests with that in his sanctuary. The invitation from Ryokan is, come to the hermitage, walk through the thick forest, climb cold mountain, as it's called in the Chinese poems. Try and make it to cold mountain, to this place of sanctuary among the clouds. Now to this day, the invitation of the Buddha to the sons and daughters of good families still stands. That's you, the sons and daughters of the noble family of the Buddha, yourself, to come and join in the holy life, in the life that springs from this true nature or Buddha nature that is who we really are. And the Buddha found in his own life the need for this sanctuary to remember this. I mean, his story is really one of trees, he was born under a tree. His mother was holding onto this tree limb and Buddha was born, or so the story tells. Quick and easy. So that's how it goes in the myths, right? And he was enlightened under a tree and he sat under a tree to turn the wheel of the Dharma and give the teachings. And he lived under the trees in the forest and he died between two sal trees that came in bloom out of season as he lay between them. And to seek sanctuary, then, is a returning to nature and to our own nature. My wife, who has a very different rhythm than I do, likes to get up early, um, way before I do. I, I like to stay up late some and write or do things, and she goes to sleep a little bit earlier. But she gets up quite early, and she does her meditation and writes her dreams and... Um, does her yoga and things, and then she goes out for a very early morning walk and often comes over to Spirit Rock to walk, or in the valley in the other edge of Spirit Rock land, between Spirit Rock and the open space. And she has a thing with animals. Basically, she knows where they are and who they are, and they kind of know her. It just happens. So she comes out in the morning, and 
for several years she's been following this family of bobcats out here and watching them and seeing their kits, their babies. I guess that's what they're called. I don't know what their bobcat children <laughs> get named. Um, but I too, when I'm out here, um, and it's quiet without the construction going on, there's so many animals. There's a red fox that's run across the parking lot several times early in the morning or late in the evening. And there are, of course, possums and all the turkeys and then the coyotes. And you hear the coyotes here and the turkeys over there. And you say, okay, you know, what's happening for dinner tonight, right? But there are more turkeys each year, these wild turkeys. So I, the coyotes and turkeys have figured something out, right? And there's a red-shouldered hawk that always sits near the entrance to the property in the mornings on the wires there, kind of watch as people come to Sylvia's Wednesday meditation class, you know. Um, and I'm so pleased the way things are getting built, because when we first look at what we should make here, there were two styles of buildings that we considered. One was the kind of Spanish mission monastery with a courtyard and things, which is very beautiful and somewhat traditional in California. And the other, more like the forest monastery, are these buildings separated, which is what we chose to do, not closing the world out. But now, as people come on retreat, and I love this on retreat, you're silent, and you've been sitting and walking all day, and then it's time to get up, and you walk through the rain back to the place where you live, or you walk out in the moonlight or in the wind, and between the sittings and the walking and the, the eating and the place you sleep, you have to walk among the trees and out in the wind again and the stars. So we'll be very fortunate, I think, with that. So this is part of sanctuary. It's the returning to that which is natural, the trees of the Buddha, the space that's natural within us, um, some other rhythm than the rhythm of the freeway. Now, the forms of meditation themselves are the creation of sanctuary. When we sit in meditation to be here and now with what is, we become a sanctuary. We reawaken in that sanctuary, in the simplest way, a sense of what is present, what is holy, what is beautiful in that stillness. That is, we quiet the mind and we open the senses, and we open the heart. And daily meditation, for those of you who undertake it, is in that way making a sanctuary with your body at home. You quiet down, you sit, and first there's the review of all that happened during the day, or the review of all that's supposed to happen during the day if you're sitting in the morning, you know. The release, the thoughts, the body energy you carry, the quieting of the mind if you're lucky a little bit, the softening of the heart, the feeling of the breath, the letting go of the body of fear a bit, just resting. And as we sit still and rest and listen, we can again get in touch with our own breath, the life breath, and feel that it moves. The breath itself becomes a kind of sanctuary. And you can be in great difficulty or your children or something can happen and you just come back and breathe and stop holding the breath and breathe in the midst of it. And the breath becomes a refuge or a sanctuary. Whatever arises becomes received in this place of sanctuary.
This is from Zen Master Suzuki Roshi. Suppose your children are suffering from a grave or even hopeless disease, and you don't know what to do. You cannot lie in bed. Normally the most comfortable place for you would be a warm, comfortable bed, but now because of your mental agony you cannot rest. You pace up and down, in and out, but this does not help. Actually, the best way to relieve your mental suffering is to sit. Even in such a confused state of mind and bad posture, if you have no experience of sitting in this kind of difficult situation, you are not yet a true meditation student. For no other activity will appease your suffering. In other restless positions, you have no power to accept your difficulties. But as you sit still, this sitting posture, which you have connected with through your own long and hard practice, your mind and body, remember this great power to accept things as they are, whether agreeable or disagreeable. In continuous practice, under a succession of agreeable and disagreeable situations, you will realize the marrow of meditation and acquire its true strength. And so the sitting itself becomes a sanctuary wherever we do it. Retreats even more so when you have a day or a week or a month to sit and listen in that way. And yes, it's true. You can go and walk in the Sierras or walk by the ocean and those are sanctuary. That's a beautiful renewal. But in the end, the ultimate sanctuary is our own heart. to take refuge where we are in this moment, to live in the reality of the present moment, open to it, to live in the reality that we do not possess anything, our children, our own bodies. We can care for them, but they are not ours to possess. To live in the reality of change, which is not in our control, so much of it, and to find a rest something holy in the midst of that. As Zen master Gensei writes, trailing my stick I go down to the garden edge, out beyond the pine gate. The fall floods have washed away the planks of the bridge. Shouldering my sandals I wade the narrow stream. I dabble in its flow, delighted by the shallowness of the water, gaze at the flagging, Admire how firm the stones are. The point in life is to know what is enough. Why envy those otherworldly mortals? With the happiness held in one inch square heart, you can fill the whole space between heaven and earth. So this is meditation as sanctuary in ourselves. Now one other important element of sanctuary that must be spoken is that it cannot only be in nature. It has to also include our human community, the sanctuary that we offer to one another, our interdependence. And part of what it makes the temple of refuge in 
Hawaii so powerful or the forest monasteries or wherever one goes in such a place is that there was a priest there or nuns or monks there who would hear your confession or sit with you or offer their forgiveness or their compassion in the face of things that you could not face. You know how much we offer that to one another, how contagious that is from one heart to another. I remember Ramdas in the early years when we were teaching at Naropa Institute and one of the first or second summers, 2,000 people, and it was the full moon, I think it was Guru Purnima Day, this great holiday in India, and decided to have on the plains of outside of Boulder overlooking the the wall of the Rocky Mountains under this full moon, a huge Shiva fire, Kali fire, chanting all night. And then Ramdas stood by the fire and he said, if anyone has anything that they've never been able to tell another human being that they carry as their suffering or their fear or their guilt or their shame or any difficulty at all, I will stand by this fire as a priest in the service of Shiva and Kali and you come and speak it to me. You write it first, you speak it to me and then you throw it in the fire. Because he knew you couldn't just go and throw it in the fire. It doesn't work that way. Somehow there's also a sanctuary that we offer to one another. Strawberries are too delicate to be picked by machine. The perfectly ripe ones bruise at even too heavy a human touch. It means then that every strawberry you have ever eaten, every piece of fruit has been picked by callous human hands. Every piece of bread, every glass of wine, and the grapes that made it represent someone's knees, someone's aching back and hips, someone with a bandana on her wrist to wipe away the sweat. We cannot get away from the truth. The only way we can live is to feed one another. So there's this element of sanctuary too. And in the Buddhist temples, beside the places of solitude and huts and caves, there is a sima, a sacred boundary that's made for the sangha for the, the most um, important activities of the monks or the nuns. And they go into this sacred ground to renew their vows, um, to censure one another, to ask forgiveness, to make commitments of the heart to receive new members. And in regular ceremonies, they meet confessions, forgiveness, rituals, in which all the members of the community, from the abbot to the newest member, all sit on the same level and speak to one another about how they've served one another and how they might have harmed one another and ask again for a forgiveness for what was unskillful. We're trying to learn this here in the staff and board and the community that we're developing to use these rituals as well to make this a sanctuary where we, where we hold one another's practice. So in a sacred place, this is also what we can offer to one another.
I read in the paper some time ago about a man in New York City who was, I don't know, somehow a cross between an artist and a sociologist and maybe a madman who decided to name himself Mr. Apology. And he was writing letters to the paper about things that needed to be apologized for in the city. And then he sent up the Mr. Apology hotline, right? A number in which you could call where he had a whole little rap about apologies. And he said, if you apologize in a genuine way on Mr. Apology's line, you will be forgiven. And the phone started ringing. And he had, because people didn't use their names, he had tapes of people describing criminals, people describing horrendous things that they had done, and calling, and and poignant stories, and terrible stories, and beautiful stories, all floods of calls, asking for apology, making apology, and asking for forgiveness. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. And so here it is, this art project with a machine at a distance. And even so, thousands of people are, you know, lifting their phone and dialing Mr. Apology. It's part of sanctuary. Now the images in the great spiritual traditions of the world, the Egyptian Book of the Dead, the Tibetan Book of the Dead, the Hindu and the Buddhist, they say often that at death there is a great judgment. Lord Yama meets you to judge you, or in the Egyptian, who is it, Mat, who weighs your soul against a feather? Is that right? Anyone know the Egyptian mythology? Oh, you guys got to read a little more. Come on. But you've all heard these. In truth, when you speak to those who've had near-death experiences or those, the priests in these cultures, who understand the, the inner meaning of the myth, it turns out that the one who judges you at the end of your life is, of course, yourself. You look over your life, but after it, with the eyes that can see it all, and hopefully with the eyes of some compassion, and as you who say, oh, I regret this, and I wish that, and that is the place, the true symbol of judgment. So it's so important in creating sanctuary that there be this quality of forgiveness, of a letting go of the past and opening of the barriers of the heart. True sanctuary, then, is a place of both honesty and mercy, reconciliation. And out of this, can something new be born. What makes the temples of the forest or the temples of Hawaii so powerful is that they become a place where we step out of the busyness of our lives, success and failure, and remember to rest in the truth of the heart, where we quiet the mind and open the heart and hear the waves of something bigger in our life. As Carl Jung says, it is important to have a secret, a premonition of mystery, to live in the world which is in some respect mysterious. We must sense that things happen 
and can be experienced which remain to us inexplicable, that not everything that happens can be anticipated. The unexpected and the incredible belong in this world, and only then is our life sacred, only then is our life whole. I'm told that it used to be that near every large community there was a temple in other times and cultures. And the Dalai Lama, of course, who is the carrier of the legacy of Tibet, has made a proposition to the Chinese Communist Army government and to the United Nations that Tibet remain a part of China but that instead of it being colonized for uh, trade purposes and military purposes, that Tibet be allowed to remain with its indigenous religion and that it be seen as the first entire nation in the world that becomes a sanctuary for peace, in which no weapons at all are allowed within its borders and in which none of the wild creatures of the country are killed. So this is the model, he says, let Tibet be the first example of a sanctuary for peace. But imagine if there were such sanctuaries that we could make or build in Bosnia, you know, and in Serbia, and in the West Bank, and Gaza, and in Afghanistan, and in our own cities. I mean, part of the beauty of the churches during the terrible destruction in El Salvador was the sanctuary movement, that people who came who really, really needed sanctuary had it. And I found in this last few years working together with Michael Mead and Malidoma Somme others um, with young men from the inner cities who are coming out of the gangs, that one of the things they desperately need is sanctuary. Because if you're even still there, if you drop out, they'll kill you because you broke your vows. If you don't wear your colors, if you don't stay with the gang, you risk, your, you risk death. And so these young men who say, all right, I've seen something different, I've tasted something in these retreats and the teachings we give, but I don't know what to do when I go back. So we've started talking to churches, the ones that gave sanctuary to those from El Salvador. Would you give sanctuary to these young men? Could we do that? The importance of refuge and the importance of sanctuary. Because it's not that we get something or know something, you leave here and you know a whole lot more about Buddhism. Spare you, you know. It's not so much to take on one more layer or one philosophy that you can then, you know, tell to other people. It is this quieting of the mind, the opening of the heart, the receiving of a deeper wisdom that comes of mystery and sanctuary. When did the smoke learn how to fly, asks Neruda. Why is the scorpion venomous and the elephant blessed? What are the tortoise's thoughts, and to which point do the shadows withdraw? And what is the song of the rain's repetition, and where do the hawks go to die? 
and why are the leaves of calendula green? What we know comes to so little, and what we presume is so much. There is a possibility of resacralizing our lives and this culture, but it requires the recreation of sanctuary, most importantly within ourselves, in our lives, and then in places that remind us. And I hope that we can create here at Spirit Rock in the long term a place that serves thousands of people as that sanctuary for healing and awakening. Even as you can use meditation, prayer, your own practice to step out of the conditions of life that change and sit in the midst of all of that in the place connected with what my teacher called your true home. So I end with a little bit of poetry again from Ryokan. My life may appear melancholy, but traveling through this world, I've entrusted myself to heaven. In my sack, three quarts of rice. By the hearth, a bundle of firewood. If someone asks what is the mark of enlightenment or illusion, after all these years, I cannot say. Praise and blame, wealth and honor are nothing but dust. And as the evening rain falls, I sit quietly in my hermitage and stretch out both feet in answer. Just that simple being. Or from the Tao. Fame or integrity, which is more important? Money or happiness, which is more valuable? Success or failure, which is more destructive? If you look to others for fulfillment, you will never truly be fulfilled. If your happiness depends on changing conditions, you will never be happy with yourself. Be content with what you have. Rejoice in the way things are. When you realize there is nothing lacking, the whole world belongs to you. So let's sit. the sanctuary of the breath, the resting in this, this present moment. As you sit quietly, a question or two for you. What is your source of sanctuary in life? 
your places of sanctuary, your practices of sanctuary. And how might you create or nourish or foster this sense of sacredness and sanctuary more fully in your life and in your world? In a couple minutes or a few minutes, we'll chant and leave um, with that chant. But for the next couple or a few minutes, just to ask, as you reflect on this question, what is your place of sanctuary? What do you use in your life to come back to that? A bunch of answers, if you, if you would be willing. Yes? Walking up Bernal Hill with my dog every morning. Walking up Bernal Hill with my dog every morning. Mm. Mm. Um, listen to the heart. Listen to the heart. I run the trails on Mount Tam. The tr- you run the trails on Mount Tam. Returning to the question, what can I know directly right now? Dancing. Fasting? Dancing. Dancing. Ah, dancing. Singing. Sitting in church when it's empty. Sitting in church when it's empty. No one's mentioned meditation. What did she say? Meditation. Meditation. Thank you. Mm. One more little announcement and we'll do our chant. Doreen and one other person with her needs a ride back to Samuel P. Taylor Campground where they're camping. Is anybody going west that way who can give a ride? Yes, would you come up here? And then Doreen will come up as well. Thank you. So the chant we'll do is this one simple word which means to bow to or pay respects, as in the sanctuary where 
whatever comes in or whoever arrives, they're met with respect. The word is namo, which is the first word of most of the Buddhist texts or sutras. And also the greeting in India or the root of it, the greeting namaste is I bow or I honor the divine within you or the, that which is holy in you, namaste. So we'll chant namo for a little while and you can imagine as in sanctuary bowing to whatever you envision or arises or you think would be good to bow to in your heart. Namo Travel well this evening. Um, drive politely. It's dark. And uh, um, stay with that sense of sanctuary this week. Next week, Guy Armstrong will do Monday night, who's a wonderful teacher. And then I'll be back and do all the Mondays in November. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.